Good morning to you. We are in our series in the book of Nehemiah, Meticulous Ministry in Times of Uncertainty. And uh, we are in Nehemiah 6. We are in four Sundays on leadership lessons from Nehemiah's notebook. And we are on Sermon 2 in that endeavor. But before we dive into Nehemiah, there's a little bit of trivia you might want to know. Did you know that Nehemiah might be one of the shortest people in all the Bible? After all, he's Nehemiah, right, Joey? Gets better. Now, Nehemiah is not the shortest man in Scripture. There is also Bildad the Shuhite, right? Read about him. And, and then probably the award for the shortest fellow in Scripture goes to the guard who slept on his watch. That guy had to be pretty short, right? Okay. So, Nehemiah's physical stature is the subject of much conjecture, but his status as a leader is not. Nehemiah is one of Scripture's great leaders. God used Nehemiah to achieve in 52 days what 50,000 Israelites could not do in 95 years. And so it's no surprise that we can glean many valuable, biblical, practical leadership lessons from Nehemiah's notebook. And if you would turn with me in the Word of God to Nehemiah 6 and verse 15. Nehemiah 6 and verse 15. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, just reach out in front of you and in the, the Blue Pew Bible, I believe if you turn to page 508, you will find Nehemiah chapter 6. As you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to guide our time together in prayer. Father, we invite You as Lord of this church to speak. We ask, Lord, that You would speak for Your servants are listening. We ask that You would uh, give us ears to hear the truth of Scripture, that we would push back against the culture and the conjecture and the lies of the enemy, and we would listen to the voice of truth, for Your Word is truth, Your Son is truth, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and the truth shall set us free. I pray, Lord, that there might be some here today that the enemy has binded and blinded, that they would be liberated by the truth of Scripture today, that where fear has hold reign, that faith might reign. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now the Word of God says in Nehemiah 6, verses 15 through 19, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard it, and all the nations around us, were afraid and greatly fell in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. Now remember, Tobiah was one of the sinister trio. There was uh, Agishim the Arab, uh, there was uh, Sanballat the Horonite, the governor of Samaria, and there was Tobiah, his toady. And those three were always causing problems for the people of God. And so there's these letters. Look at verse 17 again. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah, these are people of God who were in positions of leadership within the people of God, and yet they were compromised. They were sending many letters to Tobiah, and to Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath 
to him. Now, he's opposed to the work of God, but they had gotten their lives so mixed up that they were bound by oath to them. Now, how did that happen? Well, because he was the son-in-law of Shekinah, the son of Ara, and his son Johanan had made the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakai, his wife. They had intermarried with not just foreigners and pagans, but with people that were actually opposed to the work of God. Verse 19, also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence. That is, whenever Nehemiah was doing his job, somebody within the nobles of Judah would speak highly of Tobiah the toady, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. All right, so that's our text for this week. Uh, I'd like for you to look in your outlines in your bulletins, and you're going to have a little bit of review. If you weren't here with us last week, it'll bring you up to speed. Last week, we started with leadership lessons from Nehemiah's notebook. We're going to look at about 16 of these over four weeks. And last week, we looked at the first four. The first thing we saw is that biblical leaders complete their God-given mission. They don't just give it a good start. In 52 days, Nehemiah completed the wall, and that was what God had asked him to do. We see, point two, that biblical leaders rally God's people to do things only God can do. What the people of God, 50,000 of them, couldn't do in 95 years, God did in 52 days. It seemed impossible, but friends, with God, all things are possible. And they did the impossible, and that wall was put up. Number three, biblical leaders achieve things in such a way that even their detractors reluctantly recognize the hand of God in these achievements. We see in our text today how they say how God did this. And they fell in esteem, and God's name was revered, which brings us to point four. Biblical leaders achieve things in such a way that God gets the glory, not the leader and not the organization they lead, but that God gets the glory. When you walk through Scripture, you'll see over and over again, God shows off. God shows off His glory. If you're paying attention, it is not Moses, it is Jesus who is the hero in Scripture. It is not Joshua, it's Yeshua. You can go through every page of the Bible and there's only one hero, and that's God. He uses people, but people should never rob Him of His glory. All right, so today we come in and we are at point five on our outlines, and it is this. Biblical leaders understand that the completion of one task is not the end of opposition. The biblical leaders must understand that the completion of one task is not the end of all opposition. Verses 17, 18, and 19 show us that though Satan may not have stopped the wall, he did not stop opposing God's work at all. He's going to continue trying to slow things down. Look again at verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shekinah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehonahan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid." I don't know if this is how it works in your world, but as I've talked to many of you and I've looked at my own life, sometimes we think, you know, if we just got past this point, if we just got over this hump, if we, if we just scaled this hurdle, it's all going to be rosy. And, and you know what I found? That's a fallacy. There's always another hill to climb. There's always another challenge to be given. As long as we're on this side of heaven, God still has stuff to do. And so when we complete a God-given mission, God has more in store for us. And so because God has more in store for us, Satan has more he will throw at us. 
And that's what you see in our text today. Biblically, we see, if you study Scripture, that after a great victory often comes a time of great vulnerability. So biblical leaders must understand that the completion of one task is not the end of all opposition. For instance, if you go back in the Old Testament, you see one of the greatest victories of God's people in all of Scripture. If you go back to Mount Carmel, you go back to the prophet Elijah, you go back to 1 Kings 18, and the prophet Elijah defeats the 450 prophets of Baal and Asherah. Uh, fire comes down and proves there is one God, and the people of God move from their wavering, and, and they turn against Ahab and Jezebel's false prophets at that moment. And what is the very next thing that happens in Scripture? At the mere threat from Jezebel. See, Satan doesn't stop. As soon as the great victory came, the great enemy came back, and he, and, and he was threatened, and this man that stood down all those false prophets ran away. And he asked God to kill him. He was depressed to the point of wanting to take his own life, and he sat under a tree, and he moved away from everyone else in community, and he wanted to die. Friends, biblical leaders must understand that the completion of one task is not the end of all opposition. In Nehemiah's day, the completion of the walls without revealed a slow erosion from within. There were kingdom compromisers who were carrying water for Tobiah's terrorism. And they were right there where the walls were that they had just built. Look at verses 17 through 19 again. See if you see it. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah, these are Jews, these are leaders, these are people in God's people that were elevated and celebrated and in positions uh, of affluence and influence. And they were sending many letters to Tobiah, Tobiah the toady, Tobiah the problem. And Tobiah sent letters back to them. They're mutually working together. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ariah, the son of Jehonahan. He had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakah, as his wife. And also, they spoke of his good deeds. They said, you know, that guy, he's a pretty good guy. He's not a good guy. God's word said he's not a good guy. But the leaders in Judah said, well, he's a good guy. Why? Because they had enmeshed themselves into their, the life and fabric of the enemy. And so they couldn't say anything truthful or they would look bad. And also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. So whatever Nehemiah did, they would kind of send that back to this guy to see if he could get in trouble. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, our own seminary is Trinity, and probably our biggest luminary is the theologian D.A. Carson. And D.A. Carson at Trinity Seminary describes this letter like this, these letters going back and forth. He says, quote, it's a persistent campaign of disinformation and harassment designed to wear down Nehemiah and sow disunity among the people of God. Now, notice how Satan was working in this passage by having Tobiah send letters to make me afraid. Friends, did you know that Satan loves to deal in fear? Satan wants to freeze us with fear. And God wants to free us through faith. And you've got to make a choice every day. When Satan sends fear, will you be frozen and paralyzed and unable to move forward for God in your generation? Or will you be unfrozen by faith in a God who's greater than Goliath? Do you know what the most frequent command of Christ is in Scripture? It's not even close. It's this frequent compared to the next best command. The most frequent command of Christ in the New Testament is not be holy. 
though that is important. It is not be generous to the poor and needy, though that is biblical too. It isn't even share the gospel. And yet no one can deny the Great Commission's gravity, urgency, and centrality. Surprisingly, the most frequent command of Christ in Scripture is this. It's two words. Write it down. Fear not. Fear not. Why? Why is fear not the most frequent command of Christ? And it's simple. Because Jesus knew what Satan would do. Jesus knew the enemy would try to silence us by frightening us. And so the most frequent command of the Lord Jesus to the Christian is fear not. But Sean, what if they have the means to harm us? What if it's clear that they mean to harm us? What if they're skilled at subterfuge? What if their lies are, are well-crafted and many folks who don't know the details might, might believe those lies? What if they have friends in, in high places? What if, what if, what if? Dear saints, don't listen to the brimstone whisperer as his forked tongue hits your ear with fear. Listen to the words of Scripture. Listen to your Lord in Matthew 10, 26. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that it will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Lying liars from Lyreville may get traction with their fiction, but the truth always wins in the end. And so we should have no fear of them, Jesus said, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, and nothing is hidden that is not going to be known. But, but what if they threaten to sue us? What if they threaten to incarcerate us? What if they threaten to kill us? Jesus anticipated this ploy from the one who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And in Matthew 10, 28, two verses after saying don't fear, the Lord sets it straight and He plainly pleads with you and me, do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. There is one we are to fear. We're to fear God. We're not to fear the enemy or men. Now, over a hundred years ago, there was a man named Oswald Chambers. How many of you have ever heard of Oswald Chambers? He wrote a devotional, my utmost for his highest. Uh, he wrote it in such a way that you have to know Shakespearean English to understand it. Uh, Oswald Chambers said this, The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Does that ring true in your hearts, friends? Our enemy deals in fear. Our Lord deals in faith. Will you let the word of truth wash over you this morning? Listen to the word of truth today when your knees are knocking and your faith is buckling. Listen to Scripture with fresh ears. Because we're going to just put some verses out there that I hope you put in here. Here, Proverbs 29, 25. It, I'll give it to you in the New Living Translation because it, it's a little bit more memorable in that translation. Proverbs 29, 25 reminds us, fearing people is a dangerous trap. But trusting in the Lord is a means for safety. Uh, David says in Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
Remember the words of the angelic messenger that God sent to the man Daniel uh, when times were difficult, when the enemy seemed to be winning, when the people were in captivity, and God sent to this faithful man who was being faithful when all things were falling apart. And in Daniel 10.29, an angel was sent, and the angel said, O man, greatly loved. So here he is in captivity, here he is, everything is going bad, but he's still greatly loved by God. His position didn't change his eternal position. His current situation did not change his eternal position. God saw who he was was even if it was hard oh man greatly loved fear not peace be with you be strong and of good courage is what that angel a ministering spirit sent to strengthen the saints was sent by god to say to daniel in captivity remember in the new testament hebrews 13 6 so we can confidently say the lord is my helper i will not fear what can man do to me remember psalm 118 verses 5 through 8. Out of my distress I called to the Lord, and the Lord answered me, and, and He set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look to Him and triumph over those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. I don't know what you're facing, but you're not the first one to face it. And I don't know what you're fearing, but you're not the first one that the brimstone whisperer has hit with a forked tongue to say fear, flee, instead of have faith and fight. When we're tempted to fear men instead of fearing God, I want you to remember Isaiah, Isaiah 8, 11 through 13. Isaiah 8, 11 through 13. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy and He is the one you are to fear. Now, so when Tobiah the toady is passing his salacious slander with a crescendo of innuendo, have you ever felt that at the office? Where, where the Christian's getting it through the wagging tongues of the half-wits? who are half right, right? Tobiah the toady is working. Isaiah 51.7 is also working. Hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have my law in your hearts, do not fear the reproach of men or be terrified by their insults. You keep standing for Jesus. You keep your conscience clean in how you conduct yourself, full of grace and full of truth, and the tongues can wag but the truth still stands. Uh, remember Isaiah 51, 12. I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who died and the son of man who is like grass, God asks. Remember Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can really be against us? What foe is greater than God? Remember, friends, that fear of man always leads to sin against God. Did you know that? Fear of man always leads to sin against God. 1 Samuel 15, 24. This might be a verse to write out in your Bible. 1 Samuel 15, 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice instead of the voice of God. Remember Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you, and He will not leave you, and He will not forsake you. Friends, there will always be a Tobiah the toady sending letters to make us afraid. There will always be that. 
And so Jesus says two words. What are they? Let's try that again. Jesus said two words, and they are? You're going to have to hold on to that because we are a people of faith. Or we can be a people paralyzed by fear. And you get to choose what reigns in your heart. The Lord Jesus, by faith, or the fear of whatever, cancer, men, loneliness, government, culture, what are you going to fear, God or man? Fear not. Trust in the Lord and in His mighty hand. Now, the reason these letters intended to make them fretters were even possible, the reason Tobiah could be a thorn in the flesh to Nehemiah, who was called of God, sent by God, used of God, was the reason was that Tobiah the toady had insidiously intertwined himself amongst the very people of God in our story. That was how he was able to be such a powerful foe. Uh, Satan made sure his yarn of harm was as deeply interwoven into the fabric of God's people as possible, as diabolically possible. Now, how could that happen? And the answer is simple. And here it is, through the double-mindedness of the nobles who cared more for their business than for God's business. That's the answer in our story. How is it possible that the very nobles of God's people were, were in, in league with the enemy? And the answer is it was the double-mindedness of people that cared more for their business than God's business. Those Junian nobles were, were so mixed up with the world that the Bible says they were bound by oath to Tobiah, who the story tells us is God's enemy. Uh, through the entanglements such as ill-advised marriages, God's people found themselves that their lives were now inexplicably and inextricably bound to a man who was at cross-purposes with God's purposes. Friends, we had to be careful on how we live our life and, and how closely we get in with those around us. And, and, and sadly, Scripture seems to say, all of the Old Testament seems to say, most of church history seems to say that, that too many saints try to have it both ways. We try to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. We want to be in both, get the both, best of both worlds. And that brings us to point six today of leadership lessons from Nehemiah's notebook. Biblical leaders understand that some of our own team can be compromised and double-minded. Some of our own team at certain times can be compromised and double-minded. Look at verse 17 again. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. Now here it is, verse 18. For many in Judah were bound by oath. They were interwoven. Because he was the son-in-law of Shekinah, the son-in-law of Ira, and the son of Jehananim, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Bechirah, as his wife. So this very same sin of intermarriage. Remember, we went through Ezra. And we've seen this before, right? And there was a horrible separation that had to happen and people were weeping. And the, the same sin of intermarriage with unbelievers had so shattered so many homes back in Ezra's day and now we have Nehemiah 13 years later and 52 days and what do you see again? You see the return of the old things because we, we don't always get past the old things. The lure of the things that used to hold us back is still a lure, amen? The Bible speaks of sins that easily entangle, and in their generation, this was it. Now, these intermarriages, they were sinful. These oaths they've taken, well, they're terrible. This was spiritual compromise. It was trying to have your cake and eating it too. Now, before we tut-tut and put on a pharisaical strut and go, those baddies, good thing we're not like that. Remember, 
that very often in our lives, the book of Hebrews says, there's a recurrent sin that easily entangles. Now, it may be different for you than it is for your neighbor, but there's something that the enemy seems to often find is, is, is effective in your life to trip you up. So, so we need to be quite careful. Uh, anyone can find themselves in this position of juxtaposition where our purposes are at cross-purposes with God's purposes due to unholy allegiances and unwise alliances. It is easy to get sucked into the world, isn't it? It is easy. For instance, there was a time when God gave His people a leader after His own heart. Who was that? That's King David, all right? And, and, and David made mistakes along the way, and David's mistakes came back and, and caused some challenges. And in that process, Satan had a stooge named Shemaiah, and he was waiting in the wings for David to make a mistake. And, and he was ready to pounce and ready to pelt David with harsh words and sharp rocks when he had his chance. Satan had him just sitting there waiting for the opportunity. God recorded it in Scripture, and I want to take you there because there's nothing new under the sun. If you would turn with me to 2 Samuel 16, 2 Samuel 16, beginning at verse 5, it's on page 340 of the Blue Pew Bible. 2 Samuel 16, verse 5. The Bible says, When King David came to Beruim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul. That's the one that God had rejected because he wouldn't follow God. And so he had these allegiances to his own blood kin that were higher allegiances they were to the Son of God. This man's name was Shemai. He was the son of Gera. And he came and he cursed continually. Not once or twice, he did it all the time. And then he didn't just throw words, he threw literal stones. He threw stones at David, God's anointed. And, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men who were on his right and left. And Shemaiah said as he cursed, get out, get out you man of blood, you worthless man. Now there's some truth to that, because David was the man God used to subjugate, to, to conquer, to overwhelm the enemy. So he was a man of blood, that's why he wasn't able to build the temple. But he wasn't a man of blood because he was a bad man, he was a man of blood because he was God's man. He did what he was told to do. Now, the reason David is fleeing is because he had problems in his family, but being a man of blood wasn't the problem. Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you. You are a man of blood. And then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord and king? Let me go over and take off his head. Because David was surrounded by mighty men. Men of valor. Men who had taken out. And some dog-dealing, cursing, stone-throwing fool. He's pushing it, isn't he? But the king said, uh, What have I to do with you, son of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all the servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more should this Benjamite be upset with me? Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to, or at least I'm going to assume he has. It may be the Lord will look upon the wrong done to me, and the Lord will repay me good for his cursing today. David was willing to take the curse, take the abuse, take the rocks, even though it was in his power to take him out, because he trusted that God could vindicate him. Verse 13, so David and his men went on the road, and while Shemai was standing alongside the hillside opposite him, as they're traveling, he cursed as he went, and he threw stones, and he flung dust. Just a wonderful fellow, hey? 
There's going to be stone throwing, cursing, dust people in your life, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Shemaiah was too dumb to realize the peril his troublemaking was putting himself in. You see, David was righteous, and though he had it in his power, he had it in his means, David didn't have his head cut off when he had the chance. A while later, David will be restored to the throne. And this same sniveling Shemaiah will beg for his life. And David, a man after God's own heart, will grant his life. But at David's bedbed, David was about to turn the kingdom over to his son Solomon. And he knew there were people out there that were going to cause problems for the people of God. And so on his deathbed, if you read the Bible, David's going to tell his son Solomon to be very wary of Shemaiah. And so Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, very wisely but very graciously banished Shemaiah. He didn't kill him. He said, you get out of here. You're not allowed to come here anymore. And he said, you can live in this certain city, but you cannot come out of that city. And as long as you live in that city, you can live all of your days and we won't harm you. You come out of that city and all bets are off, buddy. We're going to take you out. But in time, when Shemaiah thought no one would notice his nonsense, that time had passed and he could get away with a second advance, Shemaiah the fool defied Solomon's decree and he paid for it with his life. And so it is with wild donkeys of men who evade God's wisdom again and again. It usually catches up to them in the end. Not immediately, not even in David's lifetime, but it caught up to Shemaiah eventually. So from Nehemiah 6.17 and 6.18, we learn that biblical leaders understand that some of our own team can become compromised because they are double-minded. Some saints will not always choose the Lord and His Word. Sometimes saints will choose friendship over worship. Sometimes saints will choose gold over God. Sometimes saints will choose earthly bonds over heavenly ties. And so it's important if you're in biblical leadership to remember that sometimes some of our own team can be compromised and double-minded. So we need to review, what does the Bible say about the double-minded person? Because what does Satan say? Satan says this is the smartest position you can be in. You can have one foot in God's house and one foot in the world, and you can enjoy all the world offers, and you can enjoy all the God offers, and this seems like the smartest offer, to be a double-minded compromise. This is what he whispers. Now let's listen to what God's Word says about the double-minded man. God's word is very clear, so pay close attention to this situation. Satan wants you to think you're getting the best of both worlds, achieving both your heavenly position and your earthly ambition, and you are just smarter than all the others around you. But James 1.8 says this. James 1.8 says, the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. If I put one foot on the ship of faith, and I put one foot on the dock of this world. That doesn't make me nimble. That doesn't make me wise. It leaves me in peril and certain for demise. Because you know what's going to happen? One day God's ship of faith is going to get farther and farther from the dock of this world, and I will end up in the splits and in the drink. It's not wise. It's a position of peril. The double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Friends, it's not a matter of if that's going to happen, it's a matter of when that's going to happen because that ship of faith will leave the dock of this world and you will not be able to ride both successfully. James 1.8 is correct when it says the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, which is why a few chapters later, James urges us in James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be sold out for Jesus. Be 100% in for Jesus. Be all in for Jesus. You invited Jesus to be your Lord. And if He's Lord at all, He must be Lord of all. And it's always a battle, isn't it? And I don't know where the enemy is trying to get territory in your life, in your marriage, in your business, in your speech, in your thoughts, in your conduct. I don't know. But I know He's trying. And you need to be a people of faith who are obedient to Jesus. Don't try to think that you're too clever by half and you can have one foot in the world and get what it has and one foot in God's kingdom. You will end up torn apart at some point. Now, the Bible urges us in Joshua 24, this isn't a new thing. God's people had obeyed and they'd followed and they'd, they'd won battles and they'd conquered peoples and they'd, they'd gotten places, uh, where you know, homes they hadn't built and de- uh, wells they hadn't dug and, and vineyards they hadn't planted. And, and Joshua, at the end of his leadership, he looks at the people after they conquered all this and he said, friends, choose this day whom you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. After all of the battles were won, Our battles are never quite done because it's easy to be double-minded. Now, sometimes it's not the double-minded, it's the blinded who can leave us blighted and divided and benighted. And so I'd like for you to look at point seven on your outlines. Point seven is that biblical leaders understand that sometimes some saints, they cannot tell the good guys from the bad guys even when God is clearly at work in a work. Sometimes, some saints cannot tell the good guys from the bad guys, even when God is clearly at work in a work. We know that God was at work. In 52 days, they built the wall. For 95 years, they couldn't build the walls. The enemies knew God was at work. They said, only God could do this. God was at work in the work. And yet, right there, there was this group of nobles that was listening to Tobiah the Toady, aiding Tobiah the Toady. It's, it's, it's hard to believe, but here it is. Verse 17, Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because of this intermarriage, and they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Some of these saints were compromised compromisers. Other brothers were simply unable to discern friend from foe. Uh, Remember, what does Scripture call us? Jesus calls us sheep, right? Not a great compliment (laughs) if you know a little bit about sheep. Sheep don't always know what's best for them. Sheep will, will, will wander away from the safety of a shepherd into the danger of a wolf. That's why they need a shepherd. Uh, sheep routinely, so routinely, get themselves stuck. They want to eat grass that's just out of their reach, and so they'll reach down into a crevasse where they'll see this grass that looks lush, and then they'll fall into the crevice, and they have no way to get out, and they'll be upside down where they'll die in the crevice, or a predator will come and eat their soft underbelly and devour them. That's, and so a shepherd carries a thing called a, a crook, and a crook is a staff that he sticks down in the crevice, and he sticks it in upside down, and then he turns it, until he hooks a, a, a hindquarter and he can pull that sheep up. He carries it around because sheep are so prone to getting themselves in positions where all they will do is die that the shepherd has to carry a tool because one of his main jobs is to help extract sheep that make mistakes. Now, we got a house cat. Some of you know Oreo, our house cat. She's an Instagram celebrity. She sits very uh, uh, indiscreetly. She's got a bizarre way that she sits on our, on our couch. Now, our house cat is a little bit like this. Oreo will needlessly run from the neighbor's cat. The neighbor's cat comes over, and our cat comes in. You know, it's a big problem. And that cat, you know, it's purring and putting its head. Like, it's not going to hurt Oreo. It just wants to say hi. 
And yet our cat will sit transfixed when the Essex Fells fox comes out. And she will just stand there and look at it like, wow, does it run? Doesn't, you know, just, this is beautiful. And the fox is like, come a little closer. <laughs> and my son has to come out and try and adjust that situation. Because the Essex Fells fox wants to turn Oreo into a double-stuffed meal, doesn't he? And Oreo's just too dumb to know friend from foe. Oreo does not know friend from foe. And sometimes that is true of me and you. Sometimes some saints cannot distinguish a shepherd from a wolf. We see this challenge, friends, in almost every letter Paul wrote in the New Testament. In almost every letter Paul wrote to the New Testament, you see a recurring theme. Paul had to convince the Corinthians not to listen to the false apostles that had slipped in among them. Paul had to send Timothy to contend with the false teachers who caused endless quarrels and great dissension amongst the Ephesian Christians. He had to write to the Galatians who were falling hook, line, and sinker for the stinkers who were unbiblically advocating legalism instead of biblicism. You've got to follow Judaism in order to be a Christian. Uh, he, he had to urge the Colossians not to listen to the deceptions of fine-sounding arguments and, and based on human deception and, and, uh, and, and philosophical tradition, basic principles of the world instead of the word of Christ. You read a letter and what do you see? You see Paul urging the church to listen to the voice of truth from Scripture because sometimes some saints in some situations, find it hard to tell friend from foe, false worker from true worker. And so biblical leaders must understand that some saints cannot always tell the good guys from the bad guys, even when God is clearly at work in a work. All you can do in those situations if you're a leader is to love those people and continue to serve Jesus among them and trust that time will reveal what deceitful workmen themselves conceal. That's what you can do. All right. Sometimes all God's man can do is what Nehemiah did, which is cry out to the God for vindication and press on serving God and his people without hesitation and without reservation. And that's what Nehemiah will do in our entire book, even though he's constantly pushed by this trinity of enemies. So, that brings us to point eight. Point eight today. Biblical leaders understand that some friends are lurking to be leaking, so we must watch our tongue. You're going to go to work, and you're the only Christian at work, and you're trying to shine for Jesus, and you're trying to be full of grace and full of truth, and somebody's going to misquote you with a half-truth. Right? 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 <laughs> and you're going to go, this isn't right, but it's tonight. And, and, and you're going to go, whoa! So, so I just want you to hear point eight very clearly. Biblical leaders understand that some friends are lurking to be leaking, so we have to watch our tongues. We have to be shrewd as serpents and yet gentle as doves. Look at verse uh, 17, and we're going to look at the very last bit of verse 19. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. Tobiah's letters came to them because they were bound by oath, because of intermarriage. They spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and they did what? They reported my words to him. These Judean nobles were narking on, they were snitching on, they were ratting on, they were listening to everything Nehemiah, God's man, was saying, who was trying to say it to rally the people to do the work of God, and if he misspoke, or if they could twist what he spoke, they sure made sure it got back to Tobiah the toady. Every minute detail of Nehemiah's ministry was under constant scrutiny by Tobiah the toady because he inserted his people amongst God's people, and they would report on all Nehemiah would do and say. Friends, you're going to have to choose your words carefully, for there are those who oppose stealthily. 
sinisterly in their storing up your words. At work, at the PTA, you're just going to have to be careful in what you say. Sadly, in Nehemiah's day, there were those who were eagerly searching for a moment to pounce on an otherwise utterly innocuous comment. God's man is going to have his critics, friends. Uh, as far back as 1898, that's a while ago, right? 1898? There was a guy named uh, Albert Hubbard, and he was a movement in the arts and crafts movement and did a bunch of different things. He was a philosopher. And back in 1898, because there's nothing new under the sun, Albert Hubbard said this, to avoid criticism, do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. You want to shine for Jesus in 2019? you got to do something. you got to say something. you got to be something, and you're going to get some criticism for it. Now, if you don't want any criticism, just do nothing for Jesus. Say nothing for Jesus. Be nothing for Jesus. But I don't think you want to make that trade, right? Satan's telling you every day at work, make that trade. Have one foot in the, and one foot in the, because there's nothing new under the sun. There was an eminent British politician named Benjamin Disraeli. I believe he was prime minister twice. And he said, you know, it's much easier to be critical than to be correct. He was trying to lead the, the, the nation, but he took a lot of flack as he tried. Yet as unfair as it is, as hard as it is, we must ask God to set a guard on our tongues because the Bible says the tongue is what? A restless evil full of, of deadly poison. Is that true of Christians' tongues? Does your tongue ever come out with restless evil and seems like it's full of, like, whoops, where did that come from? I didn't intend for that to come out. And so we have to remember the counsel of Scripture. And Scripture's like Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, sin is not absent. So he who holds his tongue is wise. Some water cooler conversations are better to be not involved in. Uh, Proverbs 12, 6 and 7. Scripture's like... Proverbs 12, 6 and 7, The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Scripture like Proverbs 12, 13, An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. Scriptures like Proverbs 12, 18 and 19, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. You can't take those back. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Scriptures like Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked just pours out evil things. Scriptures like Proverbs 21, 23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Scriptures like 1 Peter 3.10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And scriptures like Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. If only the Old Testament were applicable, amen? That's a joke, you're supposed to... Think that through. That was irony. I'm a little worried. Okay, let's pray. In regards to what we've heard today, let's pray. Lord Jesus, please help us to understand that the completion of one task is not the end of opposition. You have more mountains for us to climb and more walls for us to build for the sake of Jesus. And so our enemy will continue to slither like a snake. Make us wise to his scheming, remembering that yes, he is like a roaring lion seeking those he may devour. 
but also remembering or greater are you than he who is in the world. Lord, help us to be wise to understand that some of our own team can be compromised and double-minded. Rescue us from our own double-mindedness today. Help us to recognize if we have become compromised. And instead, help us to be all in for Jesus. Help us to let go of the sin that easily entangles and the lesser idols and the shiny baubles that buy for our attention and steal our devotion from the One who gives us salvation. Lord, it is sobering to see that some saints cannot see the good guys from the bad, even when God is clearly at work in a work. We see this in Nehemiah's day. Please open our eyes so we can clearly see who has the white hats and the ten stars and who ought to be behind bars. Give us eyes to see reality, to see motives and methods, to see if those line up with you or if they're just smoke and mirrors and sweet lies to our ears. Lord, You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. Your Word is truth. Sanctify us by the truth. Break the spell of those whose words are smooth as oil, who soothingly encourage us to be compromisers, to be double-minded. Lord, please set a guard over our tongues. There is perhaps no empirically truer verse than the truth that our tongues are full of restless evil and deadly poison. We know it, we see it, we lived it, we're sorry for it, and we're asking that you help us do better with it. Sadly, we see in Scripture that what comes out of us is what is already inside of us. In this side of glory, we know that in us, in our flesh, Paul is right, there is no good thing. We know that Jeremiah is right, that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, so we ask that you would please cleanse us again today. Cleanse us and make us clean. By your grace and for your glory, enable us to not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead to be renewed by the transforming of our mind. Enable us this week, this month, and this coming year to be able to test and approve what your will really is in our lives, in our homes, in our, bar- in our marriages, in our parenting. And here in this church, let us choose your best, not our good. Lead us, Lord, to your good, pleasing, and perfect will that your precious Son might be given the glory in our daily living, in our marriages, that we might raise up a generation that is a godly heritage, fired like arrows into the world, strategically for Jesus, implanted and inserted in colleges and communities. And Lord, would you please help us to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. We are frail, we are but dust, and you are mindful that we are but dust. So we ask that it would be Jesus in us, and not us. We ask this in your name. Amen.